Hello, Hub listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, the roundtable for February 16th, as I am each Friday on this program, joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large. Sean, how are you doing? How was your week? Yeah, good. Thanks, Richard. Um, Our childcare was off this week, and so we called in reinforcements. My parents are visiting from Thunder Bay. Uh, They've been doing yeoman's work this past week, although I was just saying to our producer of today's episode, our team member, Alicia, that I think they're looking forward to getting back home. You know, grandkids are a lot of fun, um, but but they're also fun from afar at a time. And and so we've been grateful to have them, but I think they're they're, they've almost reached their limit. Yeah, there's a there's some ring of truth, maybe a little bit of cruelty in that old Victorian adage. Uh, children are best seen, not heard. Uh, I want to begin the show just a big thanks to all the people that uh, responded last week for our shameless call for donations to the Hub. We had a whole bunch of people, half a dozen, join as Hub Fellows. These are folks who sign up for a lifetime of benefits, uh, all the great perks and privileges of being a Hub donor plus a charitable tax receipt. So, Thank you, Soren H, Warren S, Zachary W, Kelly M, JP, Duncan D, and Robert M. You know who you are. Thank you so much for your generous donation. It really uh, helps us do everything we do each and every day at the Hub, including producing the roundtable for you on Fridays. Okay, Sean, let's jump into the program. I want to start with, uh, I think, the big news that everyone's been talking about this week, the findings, or let's say the lack of findings from the Auditor General's report and her testimony in front of a parliamentary committee about the ArriveCan app, a kind of jaw-dropping report here that basically said to Canadian taxpayers that it is effectively impossible for the AG to determine the total cost of the ArriveCan app. Uh, All kinds of stories of misbehavior uh, on the part of uh, bureaucrats, the contracting agencies. And we hear this week, we learned this week that the RCMP says it's assessing the Auditor General's report, uh, presumably considering criminal charges. What was your takeaway? Yeah, a lot to say about uh, about uh, this week's developments with respect to arrive scam, as Pierre Polyev has uh, come to coin it. You know, he's He's pretty good at coming up with these short, snappy descriptions of things, you know, and and arrive scam seems to be this week's new moniker. Um, you know, one one takeaway for me, just at top level, is the extent to which the Auditor General kind of uncharacteristically uh, was pretty explosive in some ways in the way she talked about the, the scandal. You know, Auditor Generals typically. <laughs> are inclined to stay pretty technocratic, pretty dispassionate. Um, but when asked before the parliamentary committee about um, about what they discovered, what her and her office discovered it, it, through their audit, she essentially said this is the worst case of financial malfeasance that that she's seen in her time as as auditor general. And, and, and I think over most of her, even in most of her career. So I'll turn it to you in a second, but I think one point worth emphasizing for listeners is that this is not, on the face of it, a a case of of ethical failure on the part of the Trudeau government itself, but by which I mean the political arm of the government. Yes, one can argue 
I suppose, at some level that based on the principle of ministerial accountability, the, the public safety minister ultimately is responsible. But there is no evidence that 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 this is a particular case of politicians reaching down into the, you know, the the crevices of the public service and insisting that politically adjacent uh, firms were awarded contracts. This is a case of public servants behaving badly. And, um, you know, we can blame it on individual public servants and, and and maybe the RCMP ultimately will. But I think it does at its core raise some pretty fundamental questions about the, you know, something we talk a lot about at the hub, which is state capacity, like how in a, in a context in which there are multiple layers of sign offs and approvals and Treasury Board scrutiny, how something like this uh, managed to get uh, through the system, I think, is the, the piece of the puzzle that yet we still don't have. Uh, sufficient answers for. Yeah, it, it, it came across as a kind of toxic stew of, you know, venality and incompetence and just sheer frustration. I mean, the one line that kind of popped out at me was just th this notion that there was like an error within the app that basically forced 10,000 odd people into quarantine who didn't need to be in quarantine, causing probably untold anxiety all kinds of lost productivity, uh, lives disrupted by this kind of has, haphazard approach to forget even the cost, just the management, the development of the app, endless series of updates, things that were kind of perpetually uh, seemingly broken with the app. And then we have these counterexamples of the United Kingdom, the United States, other jurisdictions that have, you know, pretty seamlessly delivered this exact application during the pandemic for a fraction of the cost with a fraction of the headaches and errors. But what I want to come back to you about on Sean is, you know, I at one point in my life spent a little time in government after university. Um, you spent time more recently in government. And I think my experience there was very, very different than what was described in this Auditor General's report. I remember, you know, a culture of almost uh, overbearing kind of scrutiny and accountability and at times, uh, you know, very frustrating for, you know, bureaucrats, understandably so, you know, simply getting, you know, a luncheon expense uh, with, uh, you know, someone the department was doing business with and that you were responsible for advancing a file with could become a a massive exercise in collective accountability for sandwiches and tea at the <laughs> Chateau Laurier or something. And and I, I guess I just don't understand. Maybe you could help me. Why, like what happened here? Should we see this as like a, a strange, like one-off of just people behaving really, really badly? Or is it a sign of something else? It, it, like drug interdiction. You know, I always remember people saying the U.S. Southern border you know, these massive cocaine seizures, great, but like you catch one or 2% that comes across the other 98, 99% unfortunately ends up uh, on the streets of, uh, you know, your country. So how should we interpret this? Do you think this is endemic, widespread? I'd love your take. Well, let me start by saying that my experience is the same as yours. You know, goodness, Roger, I remember going back and forth with departments and public servants on phrases in prime ministerial speeches or press releases or whatever. I mean, the system 
is set up with all of these bureaucratic checks that you know are often described as the insurance costs against spectacular failures. And yet here we have this spectacular failure, which, as you say, prompts the question, is this a, a one-off that can be um, described as a kind of a reflection of the unique particularities of, of a pandemic era in which things were trying to be moved as quickly as possible and people were working from home and and so on and so forth? Or is it a bigger a bigger issue? And I, I'd like to say the former, but I'm worried it's the latter. And here's the reason I, I say that. We, we, we know, based on some good reporting by the Globe and Mail and others, that GC Strategies, this two-person company, which seems to have been set up for the purposes of securing government contracts at a, a price point of 19% administration costs that then went about outsourcing the work to other players, not based on any, from what we can we, we can understand uh, from the Auditor General Report or other reporting, a, uh, a kind of internal expertise or capacity or a rich network of service providers. I mean, you, you get this image of these two guys sitting in their cabin, you know, basically Googling <laughs> web developers near me kind of thing. Uh, and yet this company since 2015, so, uh, you know, not merely limited to the pandemic window, have received government grants approaching something like a quarter of a billion dollars. And so I, I think there's something deeper going on. It, it's not to say that the system is sort of corrupt to its core or something like that. I think what's happening, Richard, is that the, the public service, for a whole host of reasons, has seen its productivity slowed to such a level and this growing dependence on this like other layer of consultants, some you know from the big firms that we're familiar with, Deloitte and McKinsey and so on. But now we've discovered this other layer of kind of consultants that operate with real adjacency to the public servants, sometimes comprised of people who maybe spent time in the government, who've like kind of figured out this game where the, the government doesn't have confidence that it can deliver much of anything itself. And it has increasingly come to rely on all of these other kind of players who've attached themselves to the barnacle of government. And in that context, these types of spectacular failures are bound to happen. Yeah. It's uh, what I worry here is the worst of both worlds that yes. on one hand, and I hear I'm very sympathetic to a lot of civil servants. They're functioning under an incredible degree of scrutiny uh, of their own internal bureaucracy that let's say was the response to the sponsorship scandal of 20 odd plus years ago. And that is in a sense creating at times the very inefficiency that then leads to this predilection towards outsourcing because the internal system is so bogged down with rules and regulations. And then something like this comes along and it's going to lead to a whole other level probably of stricture and regulation and internal kind of cross-checking and double-checking, which will only further slow and retard the productivity of the public service. So it, again, I don't want to be overly pessimistic here, but I think a, a more far-sighted approach would be not to allow the doom loop to continue and yes. to, to say, okay, look, this is serious. Refer to the RCMP. If people are charged, great. But let's be a little bit careful here about doubling down on Ottawa's accountability culture and then at the same time screaming and jumping up and down, you know, that the government's not delivering, you know, services and on the priorities that, that matter for Canadians because you can't have your cake and eat it too in this situation. Yeah, well said. I mean, I think 
I think that's precisely right. Um, I, I agree. I mean, if we're going to get at this idea of, of of improving or enhancing Canada's state capacity, then we need to be prepared to live with a higher degree of risk, right? And and I think the way to do that is to try to restore the principle of meritocracy. Like I worked in Ottawa, Rudyard, with some really impressive public servants all the way from the middle of the system to the top. And often it was those people who were most frustrated with the kind of various layers of approvals. And, and often, as you say, these perverse incentives that, that often led to outsourcing rather than delivering you know, core services within the government itself. I think we need to elevate those people uh, and be prepared to, you know, pay them more if and when necessary. Also try to work with, you know, to the extent that you can within a unionized system to, um, you know, effectively try to distinguish between those high performers and, and low performers. But until we create a kind of culture of meritocracy, I, I do worry that these productivity challenges are going to remain persistent and this kind of culture of outsourcing to big players and the GC strategies in a two-person cabin somewhere on the Ottawa River will, will become a kind of endemic way in which Ottawa goes about discharging the responsibilities that we've granted to it. Yeah, well, um, again, I think let's all be outraged at this and let's, again, hope that the RCMP you know, finds the the way and the wherewithal to bring criminal charges. Um, I certainly think this is the United States. You would see the FBI kicking in some doors. Um, we don't often have that same enforcement culture here in Canada, but maybe this time we do. But let's resist people, please. Let's resist, you know, some massive kind of, uh, you know, accountability drive that just further impedes the public services ability to do what we needed to do and we needed to do things. Um, let's take a break. When we're back on the other side, we're going to talk the 3%. No, this isn't like some original gangster thing, like the original 1%. No, it's a really interesting poll finding that came out this week uh, from Nanos. 3%. We're going to unpack it for you on the other side of this break. Hi, Pub Podcast listeners. Maybe you've seen in this very same podcast feed a new program called Hub Headlines. It features the best analysis and thinking of our writers each and every morning. It's delivered to you in a convenient audio format in this podcast feed. All you have to do is click and download. Instead of reading Sean Spear, Howard England, Ginny Roth, any one of the terrific writers contributing to the Hub each daily, you can listen to them on the go. It's convenient. It's built for people like you with busy lives. If you're multitasking, if you enjoy the Hub but can't get on a screen, check out Hub Headlines. We've got you covered with the audio version of the Hub's best commentary and analysis each day. Again, you can grab this all on the same podcast feed that you are listening to this program now. Simply download each morning Hub Headlines and enjoy our best analysis and insights. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub, as I am each Friday, joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Well, Sean, um, let's talk a little bit of polling here. Uh, we've got another data point uh, by a pollster I think a lot of us like and respect, uh, Nick Nanos, who uses, a, I think, one of the better methodologies out there, like a combination of survey and telephone. He's had a great history uh, predicting around uh, elections. 
And he's got a poll this week that came out that I think surprised a lot of us. First, it showed the conservatives up over 40%. And as a a CPC friend of mine reminded me, you know, in 25 odd years, there's only been a couple weeks where the conservatives have polled over 40%. That was around the Dion, the Stefan Dion debacle. And here we are again, and these numbers seem sustained now, in a sense, for multiple weeks. But what really jumped out at me in this poll was a question that was asked about the future course of the Liberal Party and what the Liberal Party could or should or may not do in order to continue to have political relevance and uh, have a chance in a forthcoming election. Only 3% of respondents within the margin of error of the survey effectively indicated that they thought the Liberal Party should continue with Justin Trudeau as their leader. I mean, this is a remarkable number, Sean. How do you think about it? Yeah, you know, a common theme on this podcast really since last spring has been that, you know, the prime minister and his team and the caucus would permit him some amount of time to try to reverse the polling trends that that started sometime last year in which Pierre Polyev and the conservatives were really pulling away. You know, we we thought maybe they would give him until the fall and we thought maybe they'd give him until Christmas. And yet, despite all of these efforts, you know, including new policy, including new set of attacks against Per Polyev centered around Donald Trump, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, the liberal plunge in the polls hasn't reversed itself. In fact, there's seemingly new evidence every week that it it continues unabated. Uh, the conservatives are now leading, according to some polls, in the province of Quebec, which is basically unprecedented in my adult life leading amongst women, you know, similarly, basically unprecedented in my adult life. And now this poll today that says 3% of Canadians think that it's in the best interest of the Liberal Party for Justin Trudeau to remain as party leader through the next election. I mean, if that doesn't put some pressure on him within the party, you know, I I don't know how, how to explain it besides some combination of ego and delusion. Uh, I mean, if you're a liberal caucus member thinking about your own political self-interest, you know, what this poll says is uh, Justin Trudeau remaining on top of the ticket is, um, you know, kryptonite for you. And, and so I, I I wouldn't be surprised, Roger, if you start to see more and more liberal MPs, um, you know, not merely expressing their concerns privately, but having them start to spill out publicly. Just in the past 24 hours or so, we have reports, for instance, that Toronto area MP Rob Oliphant uh, is has taken a pretty hard line against the government's policy vis-a-vis Israel-Hamas. Uh, I, I suspect that we'll see more and more of that. And, and once that happens, you know, that's when the media begins to pounce. That's when the story, the sort of cycle becomes a story about Justin Trudeau's declining control of his caucus, and you wonder if he ends up in something of a spiral where his departure is no longer on his terms. It's on on the caucuses. Now, the same poll, this interested me because in a sense, these liberal numbers are kind of numbers, at least for the prime minister, that paint a picture of collapse. On the other side of the ledger, the same survey said that, you know, 41 percent of Canadians uh, would characterize Pierre Polyev as doing a poor job as con- as conservative leader versus 30 percent. Positive now, 30% might be closer to the so-called base of the party. 
I don't know. How are we to understand that? I mean, how can the, I guess what I'm trying to understand is how can the liberals be so down under Trudeau, but then Pierre's numbers are like under the party number. There's some kind of murkiness here and some negativity. I mean, what does that say about the conservatives and why isn't that, why isn't some of this negativity that still exists around Pierre Polyev? Maybe it's his style. I don't know what, but it's showing up in the polls here. Why isn't this giving the liberals some lift? I think basically what we're seeing is Canadians reject the liberal party. And, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're embracing the conservatives. You know, and I think the, the challenge for Pierre Polyev and the conservatives is, is to try to make themselves more than merely the default option for people who uh, want to reject the liberals. You, you know, I think there is a need to try to make an affirmative case for why they ought to be elected. I go back to the distinction between the 2004 election and the 2006 election. In 2004, I think Stephen Harper and the conservatives thought that the liberals would effectively defeat themselves on the sponsorship scandal. Um, and it didn't quite work. You'll recall that the liberals are returned with a smaller minority. It's only in 2006 when the conservatives match both the prosecution of the case against the liberals and the, and the sponsorship scandal, but also the affirmative case for themselves, including the GST cut and so on, that people you know, felt like they weren't merely rejecting the incumbent, that they were also voting affirmatively for the conservatives. So I, I think that will be a challenge for the conservatives over the coming months. How do they match their uh, effective prosecution of the case against the liberals with increasing reasons to, for people to, to feel good about voting affirmatively uh, for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I guess it's something for the conservatives just to be a little bit cautious about that. It's a kind of, you know, it's a negative billing option. Uh, <laughs> in effect right now, people are yes. not, you know, they're not kind of nailing the flag, the CPC flag to the proverbial mass just yet. A lot of this support could be soft. Can I, um, can I take the conversation in a slightly different direction though? Mm -hmm. I, I'd be want to put an idea to you and, and get your reaction. Um, tomorrow, we're launching uh, Rudyard at the Hub, a new weekly wrap-up column that I'm going to produce every Saturday. It'll be available for all of our Saturday subscribers for the coming weeks. But at some point, we intend to make it uh, available only to um, paid uh, subscribers and, and members of the Hub. And I take up the poll and what it might tell us about Justin Trudeau's prime ministership and, and in fact, his legacy. And I think... You know, one point I, I make is that even if he leaves office with relatively high un, un, unpopularity uh, levels, in fact, if he left office today, he would be one of the most unpopular prime ministers leaving office in you know modern history. I don't think that's a sufficient way to think about his prime ministership. I, I think he'll leave if he leaves soon or, or, or perhaps after the next election, having left a pretty significant mark on Canadian public policy and Canadian political culture, you know, I can point to um, the extent to which his fiscal policy choices have really set Canada on a fiscal policy trajectory. You know, think of his spending on childcare and healthcare and climate change and housing and, and so many other ways that will make it hard for his successor to effectively reverse course. And then I think about the broader changes in Canadian political culture, the kind of rise of identity and the extent to which you know, issues that really weren't part of the mainstream debate pre-2015 now are issues around mm -hmm. human sexuality and so on. So in that sense, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, 
But how would how would you react to that thesis? Well, look, I, there's no doubt that he will be a consequential prime minister. I just think some of the consequences, like the malaise that now kind of grips the Canadian economy, uh, the housing crisis, uh, mass migration, you know, these will be tallied up on a ledger. And I just don't know what the sum at the bottom in the history books will look like uh, in the decade to come. You can say, indeed, the expansion of the child tax benefit. There are, you know, lots of things here that this government did, which uh, it can legitimately say were important, important in themselves and, and arguably had, you know, important broader societal effects. But I just think I think the sums, the math doesn't look very good. And maybe that's why he's he's desperate to hold on and. I guess that's why I just want to come to you last at Sean is, I mean, maybe this is a little traumatic. I'm going to invoke some PTSD in you, but I mean, you were there at the end of the Harper government in that last election that uh, Harper went into, I guess, with a certain level of confidence. I certainly at the time speaking to people around the prime minister, um, there was real skepticism about how the party would do. And sure enough, Harper lost, Trudeau won, and won big. What happens to leaders, Sean? Why do they, why do they seemingly not see their own self-interest, which is to leave, to exit, before the humiliation of a defeat at the polls and the damage that that does to their reputation that they carry with them into the entire rest. And Trudeau's a young, you know, comparatively a young, still a somewhat young political leader. I mean, he's got a whole second act yes. ahead of him. And why, why do they take these risks? Like, explain this to me. Well, let me just say before I answer you directly that the 2015 election outcome was not all bad. Um, in fact, I told the prime minister, uh, prime minister Harper sometime thereafter, that I met my wife, my now wife, in the lead up to that election campaign. So something, <laughs> something good came out of that defeat. But on your point, I, I, I here's my reaction, uh, having been in and around political leaders a bit, including Prime Minister Harper, but but some others as well. I, I think, in order to take those jobs, you know, one has to have a strong sense of self. A belief that they that he or she, often he, of course, is kind of uniquely positioned to lead the party and and possibly the country. I, I think that you know below the surface, Stephen Harper had that self assuredness, and that he was uniquely positioned to help Canada get through the global financial crisis, to hold the right together, of course, which at the time was a major question facing the Conservative Party. And I think Justin Trudeau probably has that as well. I mean, it, 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 we shouldn't forget. Okay, yo, I oh, agree, no, 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 but no, 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 Sean, three, three percent, three percent. Okay, it's like I, I understand those arguments, and I think in some cases with Harper, they're convincing. But what does the prime minister do when he opens that paper and reads <laughs> that poll and says, "I'm in the margin of error. It could be zero. It yeah, could be was, zero." It means he's looking around the room, and the majority of the people around him, you know, aren't amongst that. Three. But I, but you know, it's worth. Worth remembering, and this may be something we ought to we ought to write at the hub, that when Justin Trudeau becomes party leader in 2013, it's not self-evident that the Liberal Party of Canada has a future in federal politics. I mean, they are digging out of the depths of an historic defeat in, in 2011. The political system is polarizing in a way in which it looks like we're going to end up with a more conventional left-right divide in which a kind of centrist Liberal Party doesn't have a kind of self-evident 
purpose or role to play. He kind of energized that party. A lot of those caucus members who are with him in Ottawa owe their political uh, careers to to him and the choices that he's made as party leader. And so I think at some level, what you tell yourself is, I've been underestimated before. I can beat this guy in a debate in a, in a camp in a 36 day campaign. And you, you know, you you ultimately you you ultimately make these judgments based on this sense of self-assuredness. I I know that's a satisfactory, unsatisfactory answer, but I think it's the only way to explain what keeps these guys, and they're often guys, around past their their best before dates. Okay. No, I'll look, I, I have no other, you know, convincing explanation other than just sheer kind of stubbornness and in some cases, you know, the nasty secret about politics is many people get into politics because they don't, there isn't a better alternative. Many people run because they've lost their job or something's happened in their lives that means that, you know, politics is the next best thing or maybe the only thing uh, that's open to them. I think those same dynamics sometimes hold at the end. It's often, I think, hard you know, maybe for someone like Trudeau to think, well, what is my 2.0? You know, what is the second half of my life like? I think it's hard to conceive of that. And, you know, maybe that fear, that uncertainty, the sense that this is as good as it's going to get. And I'm going to just try to wring every last moment out of this. And I'll take the longest odds uh, in Vegas, because, <laughs> you know, at least I've, I can fool myself. I convince myself that there's a chance, there's a hope, you know, that 36 red on the roulette wheel is going to come up, uh, and I'm going to win. Let's give you the last word in today's round. Table. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's right. And it would kind of come back to my point, which is my earlier point, which is, um, if that's the mindset that the current prime minister has, I, I think some you know people around him need to remind him that whenever he goes whether it's on his own accord now or after an election he will have been a consequential prime minister for better or for worse as you say there's a lot of negatives on the ledger um but he will have made a lasting impact on the country and you know that alone ought to give him the kind of this the satisfaction to be able to make this judgment in the best interest of his party and the country mhm Thank you, Sean Spear, for this conversation today. Really appreciate always the opportunity to connect with our loyal hub listeners. And again, just thank all those uh, donors that came forward last week and our appeal to this transition that you're going to see at the hub over the next uh, month or so as we go into the start of our fourth consecutive year publication in April. We are going to be moving to more of a reader-funded model. We think this is important, not simply uh, because we think it's a market kind of test to see if our content, what we create for you, has value and you express that value by becoming a donor. That's super critical. But no, it's more, uh, I want to see if we can have the independence that comes with being reader, not government supported, like most of the other media out there. The hub does not take uh, any of these uh, government bailouts or funding for the mainstream press. We think that undermines our credibility with you. So maintaining that independence 
we got to access resources to do that, resources that don't come from government and instead come from our readers. So if you can see your way to becoming a Hub member, a donor, a fellow, uh, please join us right now at www.thehub.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll do it all again next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support, and we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening.